0: These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.
1: My favorite definition of trust is do the right thing for the right reason for a really long time. And I think as clients going in, we tend to give clinicians, you know, one session and and that's the part that i'm trying to educate mental health professionals on that you sometimes have 5 minutes to establish rapport with veterans and first responders they need to know that you're a real person that you can handle them and that um and that you're not going to be talking about yourself during a whole session
0: Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your Headspace and Timing is set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. This is your first time listening, and thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 Cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast, uh, the podcast where we're trying to change the way that you think about, that we all think about veteran mental health. I'm uh, pretty excited about today's guest. Uh, This is someone that uh, um, has a lot of different things in common with me. She is a uh, clinical mental health professional. Uh, She is also a podcaster. And as you know, uh, all of the hosts of the uh, Change Your POV podcast network are doing a uh, month of the military podcast where we're highlighting different podcast hosts uh, that are working in the veterans space, uh, you know, Veterans Day being in November. Um, for many of us, most of us, Veterans Day is every day. Uh, and that's definitely the case for uh, for my next guest. So I would like to introduce uh, the audience to uh, Corey Weathers. Corey, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Wayne, for having me. I'm real excited.
0: Yeah, I am as well. And, uh, so uh, if you'd like to start off maybe telling the audience a little bit about yourself, you've got so much going on, but uh, you can give us a synopsis.
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, like you said, I'm a mental health professional, and I've been doing counseling or been in the mental health field for about 15, maybe 17 years now, um, even back before Matt and I, before he decided <laughs> that it was time for him to become a chaplain, and so I actually started off working with women's issues. I worked with women out of prison for about four, four and a half years. And about that time, uh, Matt came and said that he felt that he wanted to become a chaplain in the army, which was not really on our radar at all. And I have to tell everybody that I um, I said no at first for about a year and a half. I just didn't think he was serious about it. And that was a huge life change. And um, But sure enough, it's, it's been his calling. It's what um, breathes life into him. And um, it's been an amazing ride ever since. And so, of course, um, my career took a, a wonderful turn towards um, doing more trauma work with uh, veterans and military members. And then just over the course of us moving around from place to place, I've had just this really unique opportunity. A lot of spouses would say, you know, it's, it's really tough to have a career. And, and that is true. It's been tough for me as well. Um, But one of the good things about it is that each assignment that we've gone to, um, a different group of people have kind of come in for counseling. And so I had a season that was all military spouses. I had another season where it was all teen girls for some reason. Augusta, Georgia just needed somebody to work with teen girls. So I did more of the parenting, uh, military parenting kind of aspect there for a little while. And and then now, of course, um, I'm back into marriage work, which is really my favorite of working with veterans, um, military, active duty, but also first responders. I know we're going to get into that here in a few minutes, but, um, and so I'm really back into my first love, which is really the marriage itself and working with both these, what I call the serving spouse, but also the supporting spouse. And how do we kind of marry these two very different worlds and make sure that both sides are being taken care of? So that's kind of my, current passion, um, along with a huge passion for mental health professionals and making sure we have culturally competent uh, mental health professionals out there. There's a lot of people that can work with trauma, a lot of people that um, would love to work with military, um, but it's just really hard to find mental health professionals that truly get it and truly understand what this lifestyle is actually like and how important it is. Um, That's a very sacred, uh, what I call a sacred space. It's a very sacred experience to work with military and and to be able to sit and hear those stories is just very important that we get it right as mental health professionals so that's also a huge passion of mine so um as of now i do a little bit i like you said i have my own podcast podcast that works towards marriages um, and speaks a lot towards marriages Um, And then I also work with the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation as a clinical consultant on their programming, making sure that they're um, doing things that really do make a huge difference in marriages. And so I do a lot of work with them as well on the marriage and the mental health side of things. So that's probably the best summary I can give you at this point.
0: <laughs> you know, and I, I really appreciate that. And and I, uh, knowing a little bit more about you, was, uh, was expecting, or, or and to, to hear a little bit more things like the book that you've written or things like the, um, the 2015 Armed Forces Military Spouse of the Year, you know, so... I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. It, there is, I mean, and, but it's but I I think that especially a lot of the things that you pointed out very close and very dear to your heart, not that those things Mm are, but uh, that was one of the reasons why I started the Headspace and Timing blog and the Headspace and Timing podcast was to not only help veterans and and those that support them understand more about veteran mental health, but help our colleagues understand uh, the cultural differences. And, Mm -hmm. And you hit the nail on the head. We talk about cultural competence um, about understanding the unique aspects of veteran mental health. Uh, and and that always extends to military spouses and military children, uh, mm-hmm. mental health. And so I, I like that you, you brought that out.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to, to speak to the spouse of the year was an overwhelming season of actually last, it's been, la- I, I guess it's coming to an end. I don't know if it's really coming to an end, but it's been about two to three years of You know, taking a spouse who was, you know, literally I was working in the shadows in the counseling room, you know, really behind the scenes and then kind of thrust into the spotlight by giving this award, which was so wonderful. Um, But it actually also gave me some very unique experiences, um, gave me some chances to really speak with service members in a way that, um, you know, outside of the counseling room. And um, it also gave me a much broader perspective on the culture by being able to sit with senior spouses and and talk with a lot of commanders. And um, so it's really been a very enriching time for me to really see things from a new perspective. And I think that that's that's made a huge difference. And of course, like you said, the book came out of that as well as as just having some really unique experiences to speak to um, a lot of our families out there and a lot of the unique struggles that they have.
0: You know, you just touched on something there uh, that, that I've been uh, talking about and feeling for a while is our industry, the clinical mental health profession, really, like you said, speaks from the shadows or it's mm-hmm. it's this, um, we, we don't talk about it much. One of the the reasons initially that I first connected with you was seeing another mental health professional uh, that is engaging in a medium like this. Um, uh, I, I really only know of three or four of us. Um, mm-hmm the um you're probably the uh the first maybe the second i I did have one other colleague who had come on the show um that had been on a podcast before and that had just been you know right before he and i um had talked but uh but we don't do that much we don't talk about what we do very much and and i'm not really sure why that is i'm i'm relatively new to the profession uh i've after my retirement in uh, 2014, really January 2014 is when I've been uh, working with uh, in a clinical setting with veterans.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
0: so, what are your thoughts on why that is?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think we're taught in school and understandably taught that um, ethically, you know, we are these secret keepers. And I would say Matt, as a chaplain, is in that realm as well. You know, um, we hold things in confidence, and and in that confidence. Um, we provide safety in the counseling room. We provide a way for our people to come in and share their deepest, darkest secrets, secrets and stories and traumatic experiences that are um so sacred and I don't mean necessarily spiritual, although they can be, but so sacred meaning set apart, like different from the everyday experience that that changed their life completely. And so that confidence provides the safety to be able to share those stories and walk with these with these wonderful families through um, very um, just an important part of their journey, an important chapter in their life. And so I think as professionals we, take that very seriously as we should and for those of us who i think you know are starting podcasts and, and that sort of thing i can tell you for me um i you know a, a, a game changer for me was when i was working with the teen girls and i was realizing that everybody was bringing up similar experiences and similar problems and issues that they were struggling with and i found myself i'll, I'll make up some names here but i found myself going man in, in the back of my mind Sarah should really talk with Mary, you know, because, you know, I can provide counseling to them and I can provide direction and advice at certain points. But what really would make a huge difference or what would really add to the healing is if Sarah and Mary can talk with each other and have that peer support. And so out of that came, you know, a program for girls where they were actually we were doing groups on the side. And I think the podcasting for me was a version of that. It was, you know, I'm dealing with um, different families with unique circumstances, but when it all comes down to it, we're dealing with some some of the similar things. We're dealing with boundaries. We're talking about vulnerability. We're talking about healing our marriages. We're talking about protecting our marriages from affairs. And, you know, they were common issues threaded throughout there was themes that were happening and so for me I was like you know what I love the one-on-one and counseling sessions and I still do counseling one-on-one but I'm really enjoying taking this to the podcast space where we can start talking about these things out loud and not necessarily exposing individuals issues, we can still hold those in confidence. But if we can start talking about the issues that everybody is struggling with, then I think it normalizes it a little bit. It brings some of these secrets that we want to keep that deep, you know, deep inside and hidden that when we kind of expose them to the light and other people go, me too, me too, me too, then I think that that's another aspect of healing that happens. And so for me, starting the podcast and talking generally about these topics and kind of hitting a wider audience where other people can have that experience of going, wow, I'm not the only one that's struggling with that, I think begins the conversation for people to start getting help and finding that peer support or going to a counselor and then things get better. So that's my philosophy. And I think it's awesome that we're starting to have these conversations out loud.
0: No, I I agree uh, entirely. The fact that um, people are talking about, veterans are talking about veteran mental health. Uh, And that's what I'm starting to see. There's there's becoming this national conversation, obviously, around uh, veteran suicides, um, but even, you know, the divorce rate and and, and many Mm -hmm. of these different challenges that uh, the people are starting to have a national conversation. But clinical mental health professionals like you and I are not involved in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. So I think that the people talking are, are missing something very significant. Uh, when they talk about mental health but but they don't necessarily know all the nuances and aspects of it. And, and so I really like how you you bring that out uh, and say that this is something that we can bring out of the shadows and talk about i I mm-hmm. often say I, I want uh, veteran mental talking about veteran mental health to be as common as talking about the weather you know absolutely and and trying to figure out how to have those conversations. and so it's it's encouraging. Uh, that uh, that you've been doing it um, uh, a little bit longer or, or a bit longer, a lot longer than I have. And uh, in, in, interestingly enough, I had reached out and I started listening to your podcast not knowing that you and I had a personal connection.
1: That's right. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, uh, I recall I was, I was driving to Denver and I was like, oh, this, uh, uh, Corey, she has the podcast. I'm going to download this episode that talks about uh, something about Fort Carson. Obviously, I'm, I'm still here at Fort Carson. And, uh, and then that's when I realized that your husband, Matt, and, and, and man, his ears are going to be burning uh, all right. morning. Um, <laughs> and that uh, we keep talking about Matt. Well, to me, uh, Matt was Chaplain Weathers. I was in um, the sister battalion uh, to Matt's, and my unit was the one that made sure that uh, uh, Ford Operating Base Bostick in 2009-2010 uh, in was supplied. Uh, I like to say we're the ones that brought him the, the water to shower, the food to eat, and mm, the bullets to defend Thank you himself.
1: for that. Yeah, so <laughs>
0: that was uh, – so So my unit was was part of uh, the same brigade, and uh, and, and I actually – in some of our conversations before this, um, I had three chaplains that I uh, connected with significantly or that I consider my spiritual um, mm. mentors, I guess, during that deployment, and Matt was one of them. So that was – and it was something that I didn't realize that you, you know, Weathers, perhaps being a um, a fairly common last name, that that you were Matt's wife.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I have to tell you, um, you know, when you reached out, we both were just like, "Oh, that's awesome!" And it, you know, the longer that you're in, the more you realize that this the world is a small place. And and I think one of the great experiences for me as a military spouse during this whole thing is, you know, I, I've often seen the service members find each other or say, oh, wow, you know, like you just said, I was stationed here and I just kind of crossed paths even in a small way. And you get to see how how much the military needs each other, even across branches. And that's something as spouses we don't get to experience. And so this, this last few years for me, that's kind of broadening assignment, if I can use that, you know, for Army terms. But it has been a broadening assignment in that I get to experience those those connections. And so when you're, I can picture in my mind, you know, you guys crossing paths and having that time together. And I can now say from this end, having had the experience of even going over to Afghanistan, I can now go, I am so grateful for what you did and the part that you played. Um, because you played a part in my husband's success too, and so it goes both ways and no matter what that service member does you know I even met service members that they you know they change a tire on a plane well that's a huge deal you know <laughs> we need those things to work right you know so I'm just so thankful for what you did during that um during that deployment because it was a rough deployment and um and and your part mattered and it mattered to Matt too and so you reaching out was a sweet connection um, just put a huge smiles on our face that night in particular. Of just going, "Oh, that's awesome!" I'm seeing what you're doing and the difference that you're making. Matt was able to think back and and see how that's evolved to this point. So we're excited for you.
0: Yeah, maybe he could have clued me in if he saw before I did because I didn't <laughs> see. I mean, and and at that point, I wasn't certain. I think that I was going to be a, a a clinical mental health professional. Definitely didn't see uh, that I was going to be, um, you know, using that to talk to veterans. Um, either on the blog or the podcast. Uh, but that's really what you've done. And like we said, there's not that many mental health professionals that are um, not even on social media, essentially, but just really getting the message out about um, veteran mental health. It's always been this kind of taboo subject mm-hmm. that uh, that we just really don't talk about. I, I, I refer to it as uh, everybody think it's the shed in the back. Right. And for sometimes it really was, you know, if you're going through the uh, the the redeployment processing, that uh, if you had to go to mental health, uh, you know, they gave you this purple folder or this kind of sticker that that just set you apart from somebody, mm-hmm. and you literally at Fort Carson, we had to go to some metal building, you know, outside the back, and it was just this stigmatizing, you know, um, a separate thing. Whereas it's really the foundational part of any measure of success, what I've seen for veterans and from what I gather that you've seen for uh, the military family.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that completely. And it makes me so sad that it has to be so difficult. Um, I think the conversation is starting to change a little bit. I think it's uh, become such a buzz concept in some ways, even in D.C., that I think the conversation is definitely changing. And there's some definite loopholes that um, service members and veterans can, can find to get the help that they need if they feel like it is going to put a sticker on their file or it's going to cause um, a ripple effect or something. There, there are some loopholes that we're finding that will help everybody get the help that they need. But you're right. It should be an everyday conversation, much like us going and getting a physical wellness checkup. There's nothing wrong. In fact, my husband is a chaplain. He has a counseling background. I'm obviously a licensed professional counselor, and we go and get checkups. Every assignment that we have, we find a new clinician. And, you know, I struggle through the same process of trying to find somebody that's culturally competent. And if I can't, then I kind of consider it my job to help them become culturally competent. But I'm going to get that checkup that I need and that we need in our marriage and trying to make this a little bit more of a normal process.
0: So, and, and you've talked about that uh, a couple times about being culturally competent and, and the unique aspects of veteran mental health. Um, you know, how do you see that? How do you see us developing that? You know, a lot of veterans uh, and military spouses say, I go to this person and I have to maybe pull a dictionary out of my pocket or, or try mm-hmm. to be able to explain, you know, um, just the, the different changes. And it's it, so... What would you say to veterans who are looking for somebody that understands that they say, well, I I can only go to a combat veteran or I can only go to somebody who served?
1: Yeah, this is a two-way conversation I think. You know, there is for the veteran out there that is wanting to go find somebody that's culturally competent. You know, I think that number 1 we can do some work on the back end of of what does it look like to find somebody culturally competent? Knowing that it may you're not going to find the perfect person because it doesn't exist. There is no perfect person. Right. Um, And so, you know, I would definitely suggest and I do this a lot for um, some of the distance work that I do if I'm trying to find a local clinician for somebody, you know, psychology today is probably the biggest um, kind of directory of clinicians out there. And so obviously finding someone that takes TRICARE or takes whatever insurance you use, you know, if you're attached to the VA, that's a whole other subject, right, as far as trying to find loopholes with that. But, um, you know, being able to go online or go to their websites and do a search and, you know, if they, you know, you might find somebody that actually says on their website or in their profile that they work with military or first responders or, and that's obviously a bonus if you can find somebody that says actively that they're doing that. Um, But if they don't, and and a majority of them don't say that, um, you know, finding somebody that specializes in trauma and you can find Um, that's easily found if you look for things like if they're certified in uh, EMDR, um, which is a treatment that is very well known right now for making huge successes in PTSD and the symptoms of PTSD. Yes, I still put the D on the end. Um, and so there's, um you know, EMDR and finding somebody who has some certifications in prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy, those are a few things that I would look for that will kind of give you a good sign that that person is at least comfortable in working with trauma if you have trauma in your background. But I think this is a two-way conversation because I think that we as clients, you know, if I'm going to see a counselor or if a veteran's going to see a counselor, I think that we have to be patient because, Um, everybody is human and they're flawed and they're not going to be perfect and if we're walking in there hoping to find the perfect person we're going to be disappointed every time and so when I say that you know it's partially my job to educate them then that means I need to have a little bit more patience and not necessarily or at least be aware of the fact that I'm using as many acronyms as I'm using that they I want to invite them to ask me questions if they don't understand if I'm speaking something that's branch specific or um, something that doesn't make sense to them, that this needs to be a conversation and that you can do a wonderful part in educating them and that they can be competent enough in their field to still help you. Because I don't want this to sound like if they're not culturally competent, then don't go see somebody and don't get the help because I'm afraid that you would never go find the help and you would find yourself frustrated. So I think as a veteran going in Be patient and find somebody who is at least competent to work with the issues that you're bringing to the table. That's more important than anything else. And there's a kind of, it's not an argument, but there's a discussion going on in the mental health field that if you are trained and competent to work with the issues, you should be able to work with anybody. And I definitely believe that that's true. But of course, there is the other side of uh, mental health professionals doing their due diligence to as bonus you know making sure that they can be aware of some basic things that are very important in working with this culture does that make sense
0: no it does absolutely i mean a a couple of things there there is not going to be anyone who is a perfect fit Mm -hmm. um there's simply not enough combat veterans in the clinical mental health industry like me or spouses of uh, service members who've been to combat like you there's not enough of us in the uh in the field to be able mm-hmm. to to meet that need. Um so that's the big one. Uh the other thing and I've had clients that um maybe the whole senior NCO thing isn't working for them as a therapist. Maybe that was some of mm-hmm. their problem, maybe, or or challenges that they experienced in the military. And so um, where just because they're a soldier, just because they're a service member, um, maybe they want to work with somebody who doesn't have that background. Right. Um, my, uh, uh, my guest a, a couple of weeks ago, um, Jay Knight, uh, who has his own podcast, he said that uh, when he was talking to his therapist, he doesn't want to talk to her about his veteran stuff because he's a veteran. He wants to talk to her about his humanity because yes. he's a human. Uh, And really having that shift of this is one aspect of my identity, but I need to be able to talk to you because, you know, essentially what Jay said was uh, about my humanity, not about my veteran identity.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that is so crucial. And that's why I would definitely err on the side of find someone that's a good fit for you uh, personality wise and the issues that you're bringing in is more important than anything else. Um, the side, you know, the things that I'm doing on the side to train up culturally competent professionals is really coming at, um, less of the angle of making sure that they are competent in the issues. Cause I think most of them are, right. most of them have been working with, Trauma, or family dynamics, or marriage issues, or depression, or whatever it is that they specialize in, they don't so much need help in that as much as they just need help in understanding the culture. And I'm not necessarily meaning all the acronyms and and the branches. I'm talking about the personality of the culture that's important. And that's the I think those are the things that they're not getting training for or schooling in um, in their education.
0: And and I, I agree with that. I think that a lot of professionals who have a deep background uh, in in techniques or even theoretical orientations they they may not realize that that needs to be applied to this population. Uh, mm-hmm. Coming up in December, I'm going to be doing a series of uh, of podcasts. Really, uh, two weeks um, you know federal mental health boot camp. Uh, and it's going to be talking about all of the different aspects of veteran mental health, uh, not just post traumatic stress. Everybody believes PTSD and TBI; those are the big ones, right? That's fifty percent PTSD and fifty percent um, TBI, and. And a lot of mental health, a lot of colleagues that I feel they say, "Oh well, I do trauma work, and so every veteran must have or a large majority of veterans must have PTSD mm-hmm. but then when I talk to them about well, there is a huge aspect of of uh, meaning and purpose and purposelessness, mm-hmm. um, well, we have this entire thing called existential psychology that really mm-hmm. speaks to that kind of um, uh, uh, challenge that kind of, of uh, discomfort. You mentioned family systems. Moral mm-hmm. injury is, mm-hmm. is very Huge. separate from PTSD. You know, survivor's guilt is not explained by PTSD. Right. Um, that's the, the shift of what I believe is right and wrong in the world. Uh, and so I think that there is this group of professionals who have all of these tools, but they're not certain that these tools can be used with the veterans that they're seeing
1: yeah, I think you're right. Um and that's why this stigma of going to get help, you know i I myself, and this is a good reminder to me, you know, as I'm you know, my niche is working on this cultural competency piece that i I make sure that I'm also saying what you're saying, which is that um really the most important thing is that is that you have a chance to go get help and that we're patient with the process that the professional is patient with themselves. Um, One of my favorite things to do, because every client that we see um, is going to be different from us. We have, it's a learning, it's a curiosity that needs to happen. There are cultural differences. There are family dynamic differences. There are personality differences. Every client is going to be different from you. And my job as a professional is to be curious about your world, to ask good questions. And so as professionals, we need to be patient with ourselves and graceful with the process, that it's okay to ask questions if you don't feel like you understand something um, but that you're probably more prepared than you think you are, but the things that you feel insecure about, that there needs to be a natural curiosity going back and forth between the client and the professional of asking good questions of each other. Um, I'm not sure if it was a professional that said, like a professor that said it to me, or if it was something that came to me at some point in my career, but I realized that the counseling relationship is a supposed to be a model of a healthy relationship that's supposed to be played out in the world so you know my job as a professional is to model what does a healthy relationship look like with my client to be able to ask good questions and be curious and if I mess up how do I make that right Um, if I need to go a different direction am I being somebody that my client can ask me to go in a different direction than I thought I needed to go and how do I model criticism or taking criticism and um forgiveness and asking for forgiveness and what a healthy relationship looks like so that hopefully my client can go out into the world and try some of that in with their relationships outside the counseling office but that requires us all to be graceful with each other and patient with each other and to be curious about the relationship but i think you're absolutely right duane that um Professionals are more qualified than they realize, and that as veterans going in for counseling, we need to look for those things that they are competent in and realize that this professional, even if they don't understand your veteran experience, that they do um, have a lot of qualifications to help you get where you need to go.
0: No, I really like that, and the idea of uh, being able to say that You know, this is a safe space. You know, I I tell my clients, you know, I use a lot of military metaphors, of course, but, you know, this is uh, you're out in the field. This is your field training exercise. This is a place where, you know, you you can say, and I'm talking about the therapeutic session or or my office, um, that we close the door and this is where you can try things out. This is where you can, you know, sort of express what you want to express and don't beat yourself up for feeling a certain way. We explore that. Um, And and maybe you realize you don't want to, you know, think that way or feel that way or say those things. Um, But you're right. This is a place to practice um, an authentic relationship or practice authenticity or gain awareness of yourself uh, before you go out into, quote unquote, the real world and and execute it.
1: Yeah, I I love that. In fact, um, Matt and I have laughed a couple times because... You know, doing the jobs that we do every day require a lot of internal hard work, a lot of self-regulation. I think there's a lot of people out there that, you know, to, to go out into the world and have a mature relationship in your marriage or to go to work every day and hold back um, rage or hold back frustration and try to be professional – Um, you know, to do the right thing, to have that integrity takes a lot of self-regulation on a daily basis. And so sometimes our checkup with a clinician is we just need the opportunity to come in and decompress. We just need the opportunity to come in and take not take a fake mask off as if we're not being authentic to the world, but take some of that self-regulation, that pressure off of us and just um talk about those internal frustrations or whatever is going on inside of us so that it kind of decompresses you like a shaken-up Coke bottle so that you can then go out into the world and, like you said, practice those skills, practice um, a new mindset, having a new perspective. Um, and so the counseling office can be used for lots of things, whether they are working on actual treatment, whether you're just doing a good, healthy checkup and seeing if there's anything that – any cobwebs in the corners that you're missing – or whether it's just an opportunity to have somebody listen, I can't even tell you how wonderful it is to go in and talk about yourself for an hour, right? Everybody loves to talk about themselves. And so having that opportunity to, to just decompress is really powerful too.
0: You know, I, and and it's interesting, and I, and I hear what you're saying as far as being able to get in there and and have this, that, that it is a safe place, but but that requires a level of trust. And, and I don't know mm-hmm. that 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 we maybe as mental health professionals do a very good job at explaining um, how beneficial that can be, or how safe it really is. Um, you know, I hear veterans. Oh, if, if I start talking about the things that bothered me, um, then then I'm you know I'm always going to be stirred up, or I'm never going to stop crying. Um, you know, I, I've heard you talk on your podcast uh, about how spaces. Well, if I really start saying how I really feel, I'm not going to be able to stop talking about mm-hmm. how I really mm-hmm. feel, um, about this situation or the deployment of the military or what have you. Um, but how do we establish uh, faith in that trust that, uh, that, that we can really help them through this?
1: You mean as mental health professionals? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think, I think a part of it is communication with, with your client. Um, I try to always as a professional, um, set the tone for what the relationship looks like. So if I am going to ask that veteran to go into their story or if it's just time for us to work on it and, and it's we've been avoiding it for a long time, um, I will always, you know, trust, my favorite definition of trust is do the right thing for the right reason for a really long time. And I think as clients going in, we tend to give clinicians, you know, one session And and that's the part that I'm trying to educate mental health professionals on, that you sometimes have five minutes to establish rapport with veterans and first responders. They need to know that you're a real person, that you can handle them, and that um and that you're not gonna be talking about yourself during a whole session. So that's one of the reasons that's one of the things I'm doing there on the side for mental health professionals. But um it takes more than one session to develop that trust. And so I as a professional try very quickly in that first session to show them that I'm authentic, that they can trust me, that these are, you know, this is confidential, it's not going anywhere, and that they can also trust me with those really um, sticky or difficult topics. And so a lot of veterans feel, and also um, spouses, or anyone that's had any kind of trauma in their background, everyone feels with trauma that they're gonna get stuck in the pit. That once I start talking about it, I'm not gonna be able to pull myself out. And so, what I usually tell them is, hey, today we're going to talk about it from a high level perspective. We're not going to go into the details. We're not going to go into the weeds. And that kind of, I think, builds trust with them that they realize, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have to be afraid of that, that she's not going to ask me to go that deep today. Um, and so that helps, I think. And then of course I need to do what I said I was going to do. If they start going into the details, which can happen very easily, I pull them back out and say, Hey, let's not do the details today. Let's, let's go back to the high level outline of what it is that we were going to talk about. Um, you know, because that's what we said we would do. And I said that I would keep you from kind of going into that pit today. So that mm-hmm. kind of shows that I have the integrity to, to do what I said I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's those days that it is time to go into those details. And so I try to set that up also to say, hey, we are going to go into those details. But I'm here's the plan. We're going to go into the details. But I promise you, we're going to I'm going to pu- start pulling you out about, you know, when we have about 20 minutes left of our session, I'm going to start pulling you out because I'm not going to let you leave the office or leave the session stuck there. So how about this? I'm going to promise you that I'm going to make sure that you're out of that pit before we end the session today. And then I need to do what I said we would do. Um, and even if that means that we're having a hard time getting out of that pit that, um, I'm willing to take that extra time or go a few minutes over if I have to, to make sure that that client feels secure before they leave, at least that they have a plan for the rest of the day of how the things that they're going to do to help themselves kind of coast through the rest of the day or to either, uh, empower them to get out of that pit themselves or ways that they can kind of stay outside of that for the rest of the day. So I think as professionals, we have to, Uh, prepare our clients for what's happening, to walk them through what your plan is, and then do what you say you're going to do so that that trust is developed over time. So again, I think it's a two-way street where the client coming in needs to be able to say, hey, I'm willing to go there, but can we, um, can you make sure that I'm okay by the time I leave the session or um, that I can't do it today, right? That can we, you know, for a very good reason, I can't, maybe I've got to go spend time with my son later today and I need to make sure that I'm fully present that you know, the client needs to be able to work on that communication, but as professionals, we also need to be able to set the tone so that they can trust us.
0: No, I I absolutely agree. There's been times, um, you know, uh, when a veteran will come in my office and and very deliberately, and I say it often on the podcast, and those audience who have. Who have listened to several um, you know, describe my office as a retired first sergeant's office, right? I've got maps on the walls and, coins <laughs> and you know, and so as soon as uh, a veteran walks in my office, they're like, "Okay, this guy gets it; um, mm-hmm. he understands." He, you know, mm-hmm. I know that he knows, um, and then they'll want to go into their details. They're like, "Ah, there's here's somebody that I don't have to explain what what IED means or anything." But, yes, and they want to go. That very first day into the worst day of their lives and I have to as a professional say, whoa, let's let's settle down. Let's let's pull back. Let's hear a little bit more. Like you said, let's get that that high level view or let's understand more. Let's get you some coping techniques. Let's let's develop some things um, that you may not even be aware of that you do. That get in the way of of you calming yourself, pulling yourself out of the pit or getting pulled out of the pit. And so I think it's incumbent on the professional to be able to recognize when the right time is as well.
1: Yeah. And I, if I can just pause there for a second, because I think that you gave a perfect example of two things happening. One, you've got a client who comes in and immediately establishes that rapport of trust with you because they can see visually that you get it. And that, I think, is a good cue to mental health professionals that might be listening how important and how powerful it is when you – you don't have to have coins and maps on the wall. But as a professional, when you can establish that rapport really quickly, what you're going to find is your client – especially, you know, military families, um, anybody who's done any kind of service, and I would say this for first I'm finding this with first responders as well. If you show that you understand or that you can, and this doesn't mean that you have to understand the intricacies of the military world. I'm not, I'm not saying um, that. I'm saying that you can sit in that pocket with them, that you respect this level of service that they've had that you're curious curiosity into a person's world asking good questions is so empowering to make the other person feel like you really do care and that you can be an authentic person and so I think that your example shows mental health professionals how powerful it can be when you establish that rapport very quickly that they are desperate to be understood to be respected and to feel like it's a safe place for them to really start talking about those details and know that it's a safe place to do so and that you get it. But I think this is also a good example of showing um, from a mental health perspective, how you were able to go, even though you um, want, you're so desperate for this, there's a smart way of approaching this too. And that you can trust me to walk you through this in a wise way that I'm going to walk you down this path in a way that's productive. And I think that also set up um, great trust for him that he, um, could be that his biggest issues, his biggest stories um, could not only be held by you, but they were, you respect them so much that you're going to slow it down just a little bit because we do need to be careful with that story. And there's so much we can do with it. So good job on that, Duane, because I think it shows both sides of the cultural competency as a mental health professional and also what our needs, the veterans, what their needs really are and what they're bringing to the table.
0: Well, and I and I appreciate that you highlighted that. Um, really, to be able to show the difference between, yes, I, I have the experience and you have the experience as a military spouse, um, you know, we're sort of like super peers in our mm-hmm. um, yeah uh, in, in our perspective niche because we have that lived experience, but we also have the clinical training uh, to be able to use that experience uh, in a in a um, more clinical way, I guess if I can, mm-hmm. can think of another, yeah, but but two guys uh, sitting down you know talking about this on the anniversary of something that happened um, wouldn't have one wouldn't have the ability to say hey let's back off and let's talk mm-hmm. about you know how how anger feels right now physically um, how in tune are you with your your emotions and how they physically impact you or did you notice that that when you said this word you closed your eyes you know and so that that sort of peer-to-peer interaction isn't always um, uh, informed by by really clinical training
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that's why we love this career field, right? Because every hour, every session that we have with um, different clients and different human beings, you know, has, it's a new, pu- that's why I love it, at least. It's like a puzzle every time. And so I love um, finding those little details of closing their eyes on that word and, hey, let's pause for a second here. Or I love the organic process of, like you said, if it's an anniversary date No amount of my clinical slowing you down or teaching you a skill that day is going to work. And, you know, on an anniversary date, it is what it is sometimes, you know, and maybe all you need from me is to let you have an anniversary date and let you be wherever you need to be on this anniversary date and help you have a plan for the rest of the day. Um, that the rest of the world may not understand it's an anniversary date and may not give you that space. So that's one of the things I love about this field is that it's different in every session with every human being that we encounter. And to me, um, the military and the combat experience is often seeing the worst of humanity. In fact, any trauma, regardless of military experience, any trauma is usually seeing the worst of, of what humanity can offer. And so to me, I see it as my job as a clinician is to somehow do the best that I can to show you what the best of humanity looks like. And hopefully that will counterbalance over time the experiences of the worst of humanity. So that's, that's kind of my own personal mission statement.
0: You know, and I really like that because it talks about um, how, um, how important balance is. Obviously, you know, I, I talk about balance Um, You know, balancing physical, not doing too much, not doing enough uh, emotional and everything else. Uh, There's these paradoxes that 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 veterans and military families, I think, specifically are struggling with. They want people to know what they're experiencing without having to tell them that, you know, they Mm -hmm. desperately want people to hear their story. Like you said, I, I really want this to get out. Uh, and at the same time, nobody is going to drag this out of me because if they do, it's, they're going to know the real me and all these different things. And mm-hmm. so you know, both of these things are stuck in imbalance. And if we as professionals can uh, somehow remove some of the barriers on the telling the story side, it's not as, as challenging as you think, it's, it's not as damaging as you think, then the I want to tell the story part is going to become more important to them.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, Dwayne, the experience that I had in going overseas, you know, I know you you were talking with me before we got started about how you really identified with when I went to FOB Fenty because you were there. And, um, you know, that was a coincidence that I got to go to FOB Fenty. The Secretary of Defense put it on their schedule. And I obviously am not part of planning the Secretary of Defense's schedule for when he goes overseas. And it just so happened that we were going to Fenty, which is where you were which is um, Matt was there here and there. But, you know, as you explained earlier, um, Fenty supported Bostic, which is where my husband was. And there was a huge like aha moment that I had there at Fob Fenty because me going there and realizing how many, you know, there was a memorial right there that you're very familiar with that, that has a list of our soldiers that we lost during that deployment. And I had an intimate connection with having to serve those Gold Star Widows. And so those names on that memorial were triggering such an emotional response for me, not just um, that here I was where my husband, you know, was where I had never been able to picture I, you know, I had, he had shared so many of his stories of walking on the gravel and the 10 foot cement walls and trying to give me as many details as possible to paint a picture in my mind. And as a spouse, I realized no matter how many details he gave me, the picture in my mind was still a picture that I had conjured. It wasn't the accurate picture. And I did the best that I could as a spouse, or even if you want to come at it this from a clinical perspective, as a professional, to, to really empathize and have that picture in my mind. There's not enough details to that will ever make it where that experience is a shared experience, where as if I was actually there. So when I did actually get to go there, um, I had such an emotional reaction of not only seeing those memorial, the names on the memorial, um, to, of being where my husband had been, but also seeing the mountains where we had lost so many of our guys in those mountains. Like it just was a a multi sensory experience that emotionally I was a, a wreck. The um, helicopters are beating and, you know, the blades are beating in the distance, which was, you know, that's one of Matt's things. It takes him right back to Afghanistan when he hears those helicopter blades. Right. And so I'm now hearing those helicopter blades. And I'm walking on the gravel and I'm walking into those bee huts that he had been trying to explain to me what a bee hut was, you know. So I'm at this point, I'm overwhelmed with emotion, like I cannot hold it in. Um, And I was also exhausted, too, which was reminding me of how exhausted Matt was when he was there. And I was really practicing that empathy of who did my husband need me to be during that time? What did I not understand? And so all of this, from a sense perspective, was overloading me. And I was I at one point was in a room with the secretary of defense's speechwriter and the press, the guy that's in charge of the press, which I was labeled press at the time, and I lost it. Emotionally, it just came out. I could not hold it back anymore. I was thinking about how many people had lost um their husbands there and why was I there and not them. You know, it just was emotional. And I, I had this aha moment because they gave me this look like, uh-oh, what do I do with you? Like, here's this lady and she's crying and I don't know why she's crying, but she's obviously emotional because she's the military spouse that's come along for the trip and she's having an emotional reaction. I don't really know what to do with her right now. Do I hug her? Do I talk to her? Do I stay here and be silent? And it hit me that this is what a lot of veterans feel when they're trying to share their story. Exactly. That the person who is on the receiving end doesn't know what to do and that made me weep even more. <laughs> then i was like, oh my gosh, i get it. Like and what i i realized in that moment that what i really needed was just permission. I needed permission to be broken. I needed permission to lose it and and it, it's okay that you don't understand me right now. I mean, i would love for you to understand. I would love for you to put your, you know, <laughs> maybe not put their arm around me, but I just needed them to give me the permission, and if they did understand, to just say, I get it. But I didn't need them to do anything else other than that. But I definitely didn't need them to look at me like I was broken, and that they didn't know what to do. And so that was a huge aha moment for me, for mental health professionals, as a wife, um, that, you know, and even as a person who has, you know, now my own story, that became a sacred space for me. It's part of my story. That's a very life-changing experience for me. That now I can actually take my stories to people and I don't necessarily need them to fully understand every detail down to, you know, the deepest emotion that I had. Um, And I've released them from having that expectation. I don't expect people to fully get it, but I do sure appreciate it when people just are willing to listen and give me the permission to go there. And so that's what I also try to be as a mental health professional now to just give them that permission and that it's okay whatever reaction they're going to have that I can either say I get it or I can say I don't get it, but you're not broken and it's totally okay for you to be wherever you need to be. So I don't know how that relates for you as far as actually having those experiences and being a veteran, but that's kind of what I walked away as a civilian as.
0: Well, no, absolutely. The The idea of permission, and this is actually a, a theme that is definitely emerging um that uh, that in some of the conversations even with some of the other podcast hosts and in in hearing from you now is is the permission to be able to talk about these things or that it is okay to feel these things. Uh, that's what we did when we were in the military. Um, you know, uh, I never, um, had my soldiers do something that I, you know, if, if they were wet, I was wet. If they were cold, I was cold. If, if, um, you know, they were up, I was up that kind of thing. Uh, but even thinking back to, you know, all drill sergeants went through basic training. And so, you know, um, my, when I was in airborne school, uh, the Black Hat instructors were actually jumped out of airplanes, too. And so we, you know, what it's this thing of whatever I'm asking you to do, it's okay because I've done it as well. And and the same thing is happening in the veteran community. Veterans won't talk about veteran mental health unless their buddies also give them that permission to talk mm-hmm. about veteran mental health. And unless they, you know, look, it's okay. Not, like you said, not that you're broken, not that you're damaged, right. we're not, right. you know, it's it's we, military service members and our spouses, um, my wife and I have been married uh, going on 20 years, but um, now have been married or were married for four of my five deployments. Um, and so she served in a very different way than I did. Um, my, my kids are military brats. Uh, And all of that entails, they're not from anywhere, you know, they don't have a place to call home, the military. And so there's these different things that um, if we keep them to ourselves, uh, then we don't have the permission that it's okay to be able to talk about them.
1: And I also appreciate that clarification on broken, because I I use that word throughout the book more so because um, when my when Matt came home, you know, and he was struggling with different things and the emotions that were coming up in him, and probably I was giving him that look like I really wanted to understand, but I just didn't. um, that That was one of the questions he brought to me was, am I broken? Am I different now? And so for me, that became a, a word that I needed to resolve throughout that trip of what does that mean? And so for me in that moment, it was more of a brokenness of emotion in that moment that my emotions were breaking. And um and being able to come home and have new terminology to say to my clients or to say, even to my own husband, to say, you're not broken. Um, Just because we have emotions and because we struggle or we have some level of suffering in our life, that's called being a human being. It doesn't make us broken. In a lot of ways, those experiences make us a stronger human being. It makes us more purposeful. It gives us new identity. There's so much purpose we can bring out of pain. And so um, I appreciate that clarification because… Um, I wasn't broken. No, neither is my husband. And as a veteran, if you're listening, you're not broken either. It's called experiencing life and life is difficult and war makes it even more difficult because then you, like you said earlier, we're wrestling with good versus evil. We're wrestling with morals and, um, so many other aspects that a professional can help you walk through and start to smooth those out just a little bit more and bring new purpose and identity to your life.
0: Uh, that's that's great, and and uh, I I tell veterans uh, that which has been broken can be repaired, um, mm-hmm. that which uh, has fallen apart can be put back together, and so this idea of broken doesn't mean a permanent brokenness. Yes, um, that uh, that healing and growth. You know, Corey, I, I knew and I and I I warned us that uh, we could be talking for <laughs> hours and hours, and we didn't even get to half of the conversation. I, I really um, the. And, and I wanted to touch on the work that you're starting to do with uh, first responders. Um, and so I'll have to have you back on the show to talk about the overlap between veteran mental health and first responder mental health. Because we're having a national conversation about veteran mental health, but there's not a national conversation right. about first responder mental health.
1: You're right. And I, I will say um, that we do need to start having a commu- a conversation about first responders and mental health that um, we as military and veterans get a ton of resources. Family members get a ton of resources. In fact, we have so many that the issue is more information distribution and people not knowing everything that's out there. My favorite rumor of hearing of, of Deanie Dempsey, my favorite rumor of her was that she carried around a giant, giant binder of all the resources that we actually have that's out there. Um, And how few of them are really known. Mm -hmm. Um, But as first responders, they're not getting that. But I will say the same, pretty much the same issues that we experience as veterans, we're seeing in the first responder space. So when you see a police officer or a firefighter or an EMS worker out there, um, just a quick thank you means as much to them. Probably even more considering the culture is really kind of against them and maybe very much for us as military the culture is actually against them and so that thank you goes a, a long way so I would love to have that conversation with you sometime Dwayne thank absolutely.
0: you absolutely for... so, so you gonna <laughs> uh, we'll have to to get out and, and after the first of the year um, and get back together and and, and have that because uh, the overlap is huge um, my father was a um, uh, uh, he served in Vietnam in 67. 68 and then he left and he was a st louis city cop in the mid 70s and so mm. uh, we often talk about we don't know where one ended and the other began um because of the similarities and, mm-hmm. and even some of the stuff that you were talking about um as far as the worst of humanity uh and and so uh he, he and i had had those kind of conversations and he saw that as much as a uh, a cop as he did as a soldier so for uh for the audience, where can they find you i mean you're um you're you, you've got a big presence, but uh, where would be a good place for them to uh, catch some episodes of the podcast or see what you and Matt are doing?
1: Yeah. So um, my podcast is called The Life Giver Podcast. It's a marriage podcast for military and first responders. Um, and you can find that on iTunes. And I think I'm also on Stitcher and a couple other places. Um, but you can find me also, I have an app that's called The Life Giver app with Corey Weathers, where it has the podcast, it's got some marriage curriculum that's free on there. Um, and some other things that you can read and and resources that I try to put out there. Um, and also my website is just Coryweathers.com at C O R I E. Um, and you can find us there. And you know, the podcast, like you said, a lot of times I bring Matt on with me cause he's the funny one of the two of us. <laughs> I'm pretty serious, but he brings the humor out. And we have a good time together. So I would love to, um, anybody who's listening that happens to go onto the app or, or anywhere else, uh, reach out. I'd love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate uh, and I'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes uh, that uh, they'll be on both changerPOv.com and VeteranMentalHealth.com. Corey, I really appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Dwayne. I had a blast.
0: Okay, thank you. So there you have it folks. Another episode of Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to changing your perspective on veteran mental health. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use the track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc's a guy who's trying to bring the discussions about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light and you need to check him out. Head over to therealdoctod.com to purchase the album and support the cause. You're not alone veterans,
2: ever.